My name's Dan, um, and I'm going to be talking for the next 30 minutes or so um, from the Bible. And um, what we usually do is, um, so just for those of you who aren't familiar with Rev, we tend to do what we call preaching series, which is basically where we'll go through a particular theme or a particular book of the Bible, and we'll just week by week move through it. We're not doing that over the summer. We're just doing one-off sermons. So different people are choosing different topics. Um, and I was told, preach on what you want. Which sounds great until you actually have to think of something to preach on. Um, I'm, I'm happy generally just being told, just preach on this and go with it. Um, so I'm like, oh, I have to think of something now. Um, but actually what that tied in with is those of you who know me well will know that, um, one, I'm very geeky. And two, that I am doing a PhD on theology, which kind of just elevates the level of geekiness to just go through the roof. And what I've realized is I've been, for the last year, looking in real detail at a passage from a letter in the New Testament... And what happens, the half of you here who have done academic theology will realise that what can happen is you can just get embroiled in loads and loads of debates and forget you're actually studying the word of God. And so what I wanted to do actually is preach out of the passage that I've been looking at what loads of different scholars have been saying, but actually very often forgetting that this is God's word and is powerful. Um, and actually it's a bit of a back to basics kind of thing. I think for a lot of people here, it might, this, this might just be Stuff that you have heard before, which is not a problem at all, because there is something good about constantly reminding ourselves of the truth of the gospel. But my hunch is also that for a lot of people here, this will also potentially be something that is actually relatively new, or at least something that you know, but you might not necessarily see lived out in your own life. And um, so what I'm going to do is preach from a passage in Romans 6, which is a letter in the New Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. And we're going to read from verses 1 to 14. And what we're going to do is just kind of work our way through the passage. And the idea is to expand our understanding of the gospel today. So if I was to ask you what you think the gospel or the good news is, um, I think in general, our response would tend to go along these kind of lines. We have disobeyed God. Therefore, we are deserving of punishment. Jesus has taken our punishment, and therefore, because he's taken our punishment, God can forgive us, which is amazing. God's grace gives us what we don't deserve, and we sung about that today. The problem is, if that is our complete understanding of the gospel, it leaves us in a position where we're forgiven, but completely powerless. So it's it's a little bit like... If, if, if our understanding of the gospel is just that particular part of it, it's a little bit like claiming that all you need to make a cake is eggs. That's true, you need eggs to make a cake, generally. But that's not all you need. And so what I want to do today is look at a passage in Romans 6 which expands our understanding of the gospel and looks at the... Basically, the thing I want to challenge is the, the kind of idea that says, I'm forgiven, but I'm just still a sinner, essentially. I'm, I'm a sinner, but God's forgiven me. That's, is that a common kind of phrase that a lot of us might resonate with? I'm, God has forgiven me, praise God, but I'm still kind of... I'm just a sinner, ultimately. We're sinners, and God still forgives us. And I want to challenge that, because actually the word the Bible uses to refer to Christians is, is not sinner. The word the Bible uses to refer to Christians is saint. What I want us to understand is that it's not just that God has forgiven us, it's that something has actually happened to us, which means that actually, far from being sinners, we can live a life where we actually walk free from sin. And so lots of people will be in different situations today. We may have some people who have just become Christians and suddenly are surprised at the fact they're like, I used to do all these things and enjoy doing all these things that I know was rebellious against God. And suddenly there's all this stuff that I don't, I don't enjoy doing that anymore. And you're kind of puzzled. You're kind of like, why is that? Well, hopefully today we'll help you to understand that. There might be other people here who are actually, you're struggling with a persistent sin. 
But you think there's just there's this, this thing that I just don't seem to be able to stop. And what we're going to do today is look at what the gospel says about that. And look at the fact that the power that we have to stop sinning isn't just an issue of being um, thankful for what God's done. That's a good motivation. But it's actually knowing that our very lives have actually been transformed by the gospel. So, if we could have Romans 6 up on the screen and we're going to read through it. Um, and then I'll just basically explain bit by bit what's going on. So, Paul, who's writing this letter to a church in Rome, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So pretty powerful words, probably Familiar for a lot of people, a lot of us may actually never have heard those words before, but they are powerful. And they're powerful to the point that you can spend a year looking at it in a lot of detail and actually forget, oh wow, this is hugely significant. And so I'm preaching to myself as much as to everyone else here, so I'm kind of looking forward to what I'm going to be saying to myself as much as hopefully what you guys are going to get through it. So if I go away blessed and everyone else is like, that was a bit weird, I'm, I'll be happy with that. Um, but essentially what, what Paul has done so far, when he's been writing, he's writing a long letter to a church in Rome. They didn't, they didn't do short wish cards in the ancient world, it seems. They wrote long, long letters. And he's been explaining just before this that actually sin and death came into the world through one person, through Adam, and actually what happened is sin and death spread to all humanity because all sinned. But then what happens is through one man, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in him is made righteous. And there's this phrase that Paul uses in that, pas- in that particular passage where he says, the more sin increased, the more grace abounded. So in other words, as soon as sin ended up spreading somewhere, God's gracious forgiveness spread to that area as well. And so Paul starts chapter 6 with, Kind of a logical question when you think about it. He says, what should we say then? Shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's quite a logical statement if you if you think about it. Every time I rob the bank, I get a load of money. And then when I'm taken to court, the, the judge just forgives me. So, should I just keep robbing banks? Because every time I do that, I get forgiven. And surely that shows that the, the judge is very nice and gracious. And obviously, I mean... <laughs> 
For those of you who are Christians, know what the answer is, but you can probably guess what the answer is if you haven't ever heard a sermon before. The answer that Paul gives is by no means. Now, I've got a bit of a bugbear with some modern Bible translations. Has anyone, ever, has anyone in the last 200 years outside of the Bible heard the expression by no means? I thought not. Basically, Paul is saying, of course not. Don't be stupid. How on earth could you think that? So anytime you read by no means in your Bible and you're thinking, doesn't, sounds a bit archaic, just replace it with of course not or duh, kind of. That, that's essentially what Paul's getting at. He's like, no, we can't do that. Now, why? Why is it that Paul says, of course we're not going to go on sinning? Is it because that would actually be an abuse of God's grace? God forgives when we sin, therefore we should be thankful to God. Now, I think that's a good motivation, but that's interestingly not the reason that Paul gives. The reason Paul gives is that actually something fundamental about us has changed, which means we have a fundamentally different relationship to sin. Paul says you, or those of us who have been baptised into Christ, have died to sin. Might seem a bit of a strange expression, but think about it maybe like this. If you, if you say the words, you're dead to me, what does that imply? That kind of idea. <laughs> yep, I'm going to beat you up later. You're dead to me. But it implies there's a relationship that's been severed. You're kind of like, you're like, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk after Steph. <laughs> you're dead to me is the kind of thing you say when you're like, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. There is no relationship left. And so essentially what Paul's saying is, by becoming a Christian, the relationship between you and sin has been completely severed. So you kind of, I suppose, visually see it. Adrian, if you could just come up and help me. Paul's understanding and the New Testament's understanding is that before we were in Christ, Hazer is going to represent sin. Sorry. The power, so the power of sin. And we are essentially joined by hands. We are, in, in a sense, we are united to each other. So, which means that anywhere Hazer goes, I have to follow. So if Hazer goes this way, I'm kind of have to go. So if he wants to go this way, I have to follow. There's not, I can't really pull the other way. I have no strength to do that, especially not against Hazer. And so Paul, Paul said, actually, we were enslaved to sin before coming to know Christ. But actually, something has happened by becoming a Christian where this relationship has been severed. Which means as Hazer now goes over there and wants me to go, I don't have to anymore. I have no, no duty to actually follow him. I've got nothing connecting me to Hazer, which means I can just walk the other way if I want. Something's changed in our relationship. I am dead to Hazer. I am dead to sin. That's what Paul's saying. Thanks, Asia. That was just simple illustration to see what's going on. The relationship has been severed. And our identity has changed as a result. You know the song that we sing at Rev? Uh, we're no longer sinners, now we're saints. We were slaves, but now we're free. Because of Jesus Christ, we're saved. Do you believe those words when you sing them? When you sing, no longer sinners, now we're saints, is that something that really resonates in you? Or is it just, does it, has it just become a bit of a kind of catchphrase? Almost, Because what I want to convince us of today is that that is completely and utterly true. If you are in Christ, you are no longer a sinner. You are a saint because the relationship between sin and yourself has been severed because of what has happened in the gospel. But why can Paul say that? So why is it that we've died to sin? And Paul's answer is in verse 3. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? So Paul says something's happened. We have been baptized into someone. So those of us here who have been baptized into Christ, we have been baptized 
into him, which, again, a bit of an odd understanding, being baptised into someone. What, what does that mean? Um, we have a few newborn babies um, at the moment, Rev, it seems, there seems to be a bit of a baby boom. And do any, does anyone here use baby slings? The kind of things you kind of drape over your shoulder and carry your baby around in? Matthew Fox does. Okay, so Gracie Fox, who's Matthew's daughter, um, when, when she is in the baby sling, anywhere Matt goes, Gracie goes. Gracie is in the sling. So if Matt is going up the stairs, Gracie is going up the stairs. If Matt is in the kitchen, Gracie is in the kitchen because she is in the sling with Matt. Maybe it might be easy to understand for those who don't have babies, being in a car. Wherever the car is, if you're a passenger in a car, wherever that car's driving, you're going with it. And the same is true as a Christian. If you've been baptised into Christ, what happens to Christ happens to you. And that's part of the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus died instead of us. The gospel is that because we've been baptised into Jesus, what has happened to Jesus has also happened to us. So in, in a sense, it takes that, the idea of forgiveness and it adds to it. And I want us to understand that today. But I suppose actually a quick bit of application, because there may be some of you here who are sitting here now thinking, I've been a Christian for years, but I haven't actually been baptised. What the heck does that mean to, for me? Well, we're not going to go into it much, but there's very simple application. I think you need to talk to one of the elders after and just say, look, I, I, I think I need to get baptised. So we're not going to go all to the ins and outs, but there is a response that is needed there. The Bible says when you want to turn to Christ, you repent and you get baptised into him. So actually, don't panic about the fact you haven't been baptised. Rather, see it as an encouragement to get baptised. And for those of you who aren't followers of Jesus here today, you have the chance to make basically a brand new journey where you say, actually, now that I've come to see Jesus as Lord... I'm going to repent from my sins, which means turning away from what you used to do. It's a 180 degree turn. And I'm going to get baptised so that I get baptised into Christ. And as a result of that, what happens to Jesus happens to me. And I get to die, be buried and be raised with Christ. So if you want to have that that journey of becoming a Christian or you're in the situation where you think, I think I need to get baptised, please speak to one of the elders afterwards. They will be more than happy to to help you um, find that. So we've been baptised into Christ and what that means is just as the baby who's in the sling goes everywhere with the parent, what happens to Jesus, where Jesus goes, we go. And Paul here explicitly says that that means that because we've been joined to Christ, we have been joined to his death, his burial and his resurrection. What happens to Jesus on the cross, in the tomb, and on the third day happens to us because we are in Christ. So we're going to look at those bit by bit. It's a really logical passage when you read through it. Any like kind of math, geek, math geeks here who kind of like logic? They're like, okay, if a, if a creature is a cat, it has four legs. Therefore, um, that means that if a creature doesn't have four legs, it's, it's not a cat. That kind of logic idea. Anyone who likes that? No. We're a church of artists, aren't we? No, no kind of... Like, Rich is like, inside is wh- whooping for joy, but most people are like, no, I'm, I'm more of an arts person. It's very logical. Paul says, we've been baptised into Christ, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of light. It's, it's really logical. We're in Christ, therefore what's happened to him has happened to us. And so he says we've died, a death has happened to us. So verses 6 and 7, 
talk about that in quite violent language. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's really violent language. Crucifixion has, been, has become tame in the 21st century. The, the language of crucifixion is very much just is associated with kind of pious religious ideas. Crucifixion in the first century where Paul is writing this was not associated with pious religious imagery. It was associated with grueling, horrific, painful death. And Paul says, that has happened to our old self. Dan the sinner has been crucified with Christ and is therefore, I am no longer Dan the sinner. Our old self, so think about it, if you change jobs, I used to be a waiter and now I'm a tutor. Dan the tutor no longer exists. I am now Dan the, uh, sorry, Dan the waiter no longer exists. I'm now Dan the tutor. There's been a change of who I am in the same way. Dan the sinner, Hazia the sinner, everyone here who used to live a life of sin and rebellion to God, that has now ended. That has been crucified as a result of being united with Christ. It's, it, the, the result is that we're no longer slaves to sin. What Paul says there is the old self is crucified so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing which is, without going into too much detail, is basically two ways of saying the same thing. We're, we've been crucified, and the body of sin, which is our old sinful self, has been crucified with Christ, and the result isn't that we just stand here and say, thank you God for forgiving us, now I'm going to try really hard not to, not to mess up again. The result is the relationship's been severed. We are no longer enslaved to sin. We are dead to sin. And in that illustration, Hager could have yelled at me as much as he wanted for me to follow him. I had no reason to actually follow him. He, I am no longer enslaved to sin as a result of what Jesus has done. And so for those of us today here who feel like we are caught in a cycle of sin and repentance and sin and repentance, the truth today is that the reality is you have been set free from sin. A Christian who sins is not just, it, 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 that's, it's kind of, a, in a sense, it's a contradiction in terms. Because a Christian, by nature, is someone who is no longer, no longer bound by sin. And as a result, when we sin as Christians, it's not just us disobeying God, it's being completely inconsistent with who we now are. Which actually means we have the power through the Spirit, because of what has happened to us, to walk free from it. It might take a lot of, I mean, Crucifying, being crucified sounds like a pretty violent process. Very often, walking free from sin will take gritting, praying, lots of kind of what might seem like effort, but the reason we can do it is we have been set free from sin. That is something that someone who is actually not in Christ cannot do. They, they are not free to just say, all right, bye, Hager, I'm off. Whereas we are free to do that. As much as it m- might feel like a lot of work, a lot of prayer, a lot of counsel and pastoring, we are actually free in Christ to walk away from sin. I heard a preacher once say, the great thing about a Christian and, and, and stopping sinning is that there's one piece of advice you could give them which pretty much covers it. Stop it. And that is possible because of what has happened to us in Christ. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. So we are dead to sin. Relationship has been severed. But we're not just dead to sin. We're not just dead people. We're not like corpses lying around. Something else happened to Jesus three days after he died. And that, therefore, is something that has already started happening in us. And Paul says, in verses 4 and 5, he said, We were buried 
with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And then verse 8 also ends up saying, now if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. The Christian life doesn't stop at death to sin. It continues into resurrection. And I was reading, there's, I was reading this morning actually in Romans 8, I didn't actually realise it would be kind of feed into this, but there's an amazing passage two chapters later in Romans 8 where Paul talks about the whole of creation groaning, waiting for the day when the children of God will be revealed and the whole of creation is restored and we will be physically raised from the dead. And it's just amazing, you're reading it, and it says, the creation was submitted to futility, not willingly, but because of him who submitted it, in hope that the creation itself might participate in the glory of the children of God. And so Paul's saying, the whole of creation is on the edge of its seats, waiting for those of us who are in Christ to be renewed and raised from the dead physically on the final day when Christ returns. And that is partly what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, actually, if we've died with him, we believe we will also physically be raised with him one day. But actually, that's not all Paul's talking about. Resurrection is not just something that happens far off in the future. It's something that has already started happening inside us. Spiritually, if you are a Christian, you have been raised already with Christ. And in fact, Ephesians talks about us being raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Remember, what's happened to Christ has happened to us. If we're in Christ and Christ is seated in the heavenly places, logically, that means we are also seated with him in the heavenly places. It's incredible. When you think about what your identity is as a Christian, you sometimes have to kind of double check and think, am I being a little bit too kind of big here? Is this potentially too bold and too big? But this is what the New Testament says. We have been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Resurrection has already hap- started happening in us. It's a little bit like if you, if, I mean, if I go to France, now I know I'm going to get loads of jokes about the idea of me being French as a result of this, but if I go to France as a British person, you can check my passport after it's British, I internally am British. But if you, if you look at me in a crowd of French people, you won't really be able to tell the difference. Externally, I look the same as a French person. But inside, there is a difference. I know that actually I, I don't fit in in the sense that I'm not... At, in, inside, I know I'm British. My identity is to be English. It's kind of similar in the sense that we will walk around, we will look the same from the, on the outside as people who are not in Christ. But something has happened on the inside, which means that rather than having a dead heart of stone, old creation, we have a resurrected inside, essentially. Our spirit has been raised with Christ, which means little bits of new creation are actually walking around at the moment. Do you realise that? The little bits of new creation are already walking around as Christians walk around this earth. Because what has happened to us spiritually is that God has done what he did for Jesus by raising him from the dead, and he has already started doing that in us. And actually one day, that spiritual resurrection will become complete, and there will be a physical resurrection where everything is transformed. But already, we are living as people who are part of the new creation, even though we are still living in old creation. It's this weird overlap thing. We're living abroad, even though we're not actually from that country. And so actually the identity that we are has completely changed as a result of being in Christ. It's not just a metaphor. 
I think it'd be, it can be easy to see it as a metaphor. And actually, if you see it as a metaphor, you kind of end up losing a bit of its power. You think, oh, it's like we've been raised from the dead. No, we have. Paul never says it's like you've been raised from the dead. We have actually been spiritually raised and we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And so we are a part of new creation. And just to ram it home, verses 9 to 11. So if, if anyone wanted to object and say, but how can we be sure that that's the case? How can we be sure that by, by dying with Christ we have therefore died to sin? How can we be sure that we've been therefore been raised? Well, Paul says, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, which means Jesus' resurrection is final, total, everlasting, which means if we've been raised with him, we know it's a lasting work. It's not just this kind of little quibble that's going to faint one day. And then Paul says, the death he died, he died to sin, and the life he lives, he now lives to God. When Jesus was walking around on the earth, he lived, in a sense, under the sphere of of sin. He was not a sinner himself, he did not sin, but he was in a world which was influenced by the power of sin. And when he died, he died to that power. In a sense, he resisted sin all the way to the end, and then dies to the very influence of sin on him. And because Jesus does that, we also do that. And now the life he lives, he lives to God, which basically means he lives in order to please him. And as a result of what has happened to us, we should also live to God. It's amazing. It's just like when you actually look at what this is telling us, there has been a complete dramatic change that has happened, which means Paul is able then to say to us, therefore you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying, wishfully think yourself as if you were dead to sin and alive to God. It's not pretend that you were dead to sin and alive to God. Instead, it's live in light of the fact that you know you are dead to sin and alive to God. The way we think changes the way we act very often. So if you see a, a, a child whose parents have constantly told him or her that she's, he or she is a failure, very often the way they live will reflect that. In the same way, if you have a child who has been loved and nurtured and cared for by his or her parents, very often the life they live will tend to reflect that. The way we think about ourselves changes the way we act. And so actually, in this sense, the way we think about our identity as Christians will end up changing the way we act. But obviously, we need to think about ourselves in the correct way. It's not So just telling yourself that, for example, telling yourself that you can run the 100 metres in 10 seconds flat doesn't mean you can do it. However, if you tell Usain Bolt, you can run the 100 metres in under 10 seconds, he doesn't need to pretend that that's the case. He just has to consider the fact that he can run the 100 metres in under 10 seconds. As Christians, we do not need to use wishful thinking to say that we're dead to sin and alive to God. We need to realise that we are dead to sin and alive to God. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here. He's saying, actually, it's not just positive thinking. It's not just saying, come on, I'm a winner. I'm a winner and I'm going to win, which is what our culture throws us at a lot of the time. Just tell yourself you're a winner. There are limits to how much that can actually work when you actually find out that that's not the case. But Paul's not saying that here. He's saying, because of what has happened to Jesus and because you have been baptised into him, you have died to sin. The relationship has been broken and you're not just lying 
12 foot underground in a grave, your spirit has already been raised in advance of the rest of you being raised on the final day. Our identity has changed. Which means we can now live free from sin. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out verses 12 to 14 and just help apply it a little bit. Um, but if the bag could come up and get ready, we're going to go into a time after where we're going to break bread and have the, the wine or the, the grape juice and remember what Christ has done for us. But I want to, I'm just going to suggest that we think, maybe add something to our, our arsenal of thinking when we do that a bit later. But in verses 12 to 14, Paul concludes, having said all of this amazing, dense, um, incredible stuff, he says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for, for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Sinning as a Christian doesn't mean just following where you have to go. It means actively presenting the members of your body to sin. The relationship, so again, coming back to the illustration earlier, the relationship between me and Hasia has been severed, which means if Hasia wants me to do something, I actively have to present myself to Hasia. It's possible to, to be set free from sin, but to still present ourselves to sin and present our bodies as instruments from righteousness. I mean, in, very often in, in my personal experience, I know so often that when I know I've blown it in a particular area or I've sinned against God, one of the immediate thoughts that come into my mind is, I didn't have to do that. Yeah. You, you, at the time, you think, I had to, I just had to. And then you, you, you blow, up, blow it, and immediately after, the thought that comes to mind is, I didn't have to do that. I know I didn't have to do that. It's not even like I could, I could look back at the situation and say, it was uncontrollable, I just could not give in. No, I know, I did not have to do that. And actually, that is actually what happens to us as Christians, is that when it comes to sin, when we mess up, we don't actually have to do it. And so what sets us free is not actually just gratitude to what God has done for us. It's actually realising that because of what he's done for us, we do not have to give in to sin. And so for those of you who are here today, and actually you're sitting here, and what I I don't want to happen actually today is for this to become a kind of get out of sin now or we're going to like come down heavy on you kind of thing. I want this to be a, a, an encouragement but also a challenge to those of us who are here today and saying, I'm struggling with this. Why don't you in your twos and threes and your running partners just discuss that and encourage one another but also challenge one another. And like, You might want to read this passage to each other and say, do you realise actually as God forgives you for what you've done and there is grace but you don't need to do it again. That is not something you need to fall back into and there is power as a result of being made a new creation in Christ which means that sin is no longer our master and that in order to sin as a Christian we have to actively offer our bodies up to it. So I invite you and your GCs and running partners, why don't you make it a practice to encourage but also challenge one another in those, in those areas. Just be vulnerable with one another and say actually here's an area where I was struggling last week with this and I want you to help me but I want you to also speak the truth to me and to just hear Very often, what we think makes a difference. If you think that you are still dead in your sins, you are much more likely to offer up your body as an instrument to sin. If you think that you are not dead in your sins, but you're dead to sin and alive to God, you are much less likely to do that because you will be living in line with who you are. 
And so let's encourage one another. And if you're today, here today and you're not a Christian, can I encourage you? Why don't you find out more about this? Why don't you find out more about this saviour who doesn't just enable you to be forgiven for all of the failures in your past, but enables you to walk in complete newness of life and to know a complete renewal of your insides. Obviously, we, we all fail, but we, we walk free from the dominion of sin and of wrongdoing as Christians. And that is completely different to being controlled by it. And so if we can all stand and we're going to sing and praise and remember what Christ has done for us. And as we take bread and wine in a few minutes, can I suggest that in addition to just remembering that Christ has died on the cross for us, let's remember that we have died with him. And in addition to remembering that Christ was raised from the dead in order to justify us, let's remember that we have been raised with him. And as we take the bread and the wine, let's praise God and pray for one another and challenge one another and encourage one another and love one another in Christ. I'm going to pray and then we're going to praise God together. Father, I thank you for this incredible truth that we have died to sin and we have been raised with Christ. And I thank you, Lord God, that you have changed us as a result of what has happened to us, Lord God. Thank you that you have united us with Christ through baptism, that we've died with him, we've been raised with him, and one day we will be raised with him, Lord God. And I pray, Father, that you would help us today to live as those for whom that has happened, Lord God. I pray, Lord, without any sense of condemnation, we thank you there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I just want to, I feel God would want to say that to certain people today where the enemy might use some of the strength of language of this passage to bring condemnation on you. And God wants to say there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Thank you, Lord. There is no condemnation, but that there is also new life. And I pray we would live as people who know that, Lord God. And we want to love you and honor you and praise you and remember what you've done for us. And we thank you that it's all because of Jesus. And we want to worship him and love him. And we love you, Lord. And we pray you would be glorified amongst us. In Jesus' name. Amen.